thanks for joining me on the fourth series of my podcast, Beyond the Water Cooler. As usual, we'll be covering all things that shape employee experience that ultimately impact on engagement, performance and loyalty. Whether that's about leadership style, psychological safety, mental well-being, companies' impact on society, neurodiversity and so much more, there is something for everyone. I'm your host, Lisa. As a psychologist and psychotherapist in my business, It's Time for Change, I get to make a real difference in the world of people. Working with companies who want to be great with inspiring leadership, an awesome culture and a wow workforce, that's my thing. And that's what this podcast is all about. You know those challenges and questions that can occupy your headspace, perhaps working out how to support people or how to develop a better way of working or how to increase capacity while keeping people on your side. Well, I'm your soundboard, problem and picker, and guide to doing things that ultimately increase employee happiness. My mantra is simple, get people right, get business right. So let's dive in. So Mel Francis is an accomplished HR director, and she's joining me today to talk about all things neurodiversity that workplaces need to know about. And actually, she's joined by Snowy the cat, who's sitting <laughs> So if there's any sort of noises, because Snowy sits on the, on the keyboard, um, please excuse the cat. <laughs> um, you'll understand why I've invited Mel to be my guest uh, when you hear her talk, because she's very down to earth um, and has a very practical perspective Uh, on this important topic and she supports HR and diversity and inclusion professionals on their journey through her company Neuro Inclusive HR. So thank you for joining me today Mel. Thanks Lisa that was a lovely intro. And and we have we have just been discussing electric blankets and the benefits (laughs) of electric blankets because we're basically here in our kind of matching green scarves and cardigans but you have out of sight the electric blanket wrapped around your legs which apparently is amazing it's a total game changer I recommend it to everybody <laughs> and last year when I was raving about it you know when before we got into this crisis of having to pay astronomical heating bills everyone thought I was a bit mad but this year they're like yeah definitely getting an electric blanket so um it's one of the most efficient things to run and they cost about 15 quid I cannot recommend them highly enough everyone go and get yourself one and yeah. uh, put it on your legs and there you go right on my list so um I made contact with you Mel when I realized that you were a speaker at Howard Mm -hmm. Feathers Women in Business event which I couldn't make and by the way hi Howard I will put a link to you in the show notes um so other than talking with Colin Minto about OCD Mm. this is an area that I haven't specifically dived into in the past Mm -hmm. but it's hugely relevant to employee experience and that's for all employees, regardless of whether they come with labels or not, or where they sit on that neurodiverse spectrum. So we're going to unpick that a little bit more today. Tell us, um, before we get into the detail of it, a little bit more about you and your role and how you got into neurodiversity, how that, how your passion came about. Sure. Uh, so my story is not unusual. I'm a, um, you know, a neurodiversity champion through my son having been diagnosed with a neurodiverse condition. Um, My son is now 15, um, absolutely delighted that I talk about him all the time. Um, And also even more delighted when I show his photograph, which I I think I had a limit of one selfie on our recent summer holiday, uh, now that he's at that point. But um, so my journey actually started with anxiety, an anxious child. So Toby was 10, and got to the point where his anxiety was really overwhelming and it was I couldn't you know uh, placate him or make it any better which was really distressing for me as a mum I'm a single mum he's my only child he's my sample size of one if you like so everything is normal Mm. Um, and but this anxiety was getting too much to the point where you know if you saw a mark on something or um, you know, there was something on, on, on my arm or I'd got spilled coffee on me. What's that, mum? Are we all going to die? You know, it got really extreme really quickly. Or if I'd been using bleach to mm. clean the house, he could sniff it from, yeah. you know, down the path. And mm. again, we're all going to die. So it was all getting a bit much. Took him to the GP to to help. And the GP duly confirmed that he had anxiety and referred me to CAMS 
or referred him to CAMS. And we all know CAMS being the Child Adolescent Mental Health Service, totally overwhelmed and overrun. The difficulty with getting an appointment is is well documented, but you know, that being a personal experience was something different. Mm. Um, so 18 months was the face-to-face time scale. They could give me some online resources, which doesn't work when you're dealing with someone that doesn't want to talk about it or mm. have any support with it. Um, so I was lucky enough twofold, firstly, to be able to afford, secondly, be able to find a private child psychologist um, who are based um not too far from me I'm in South Oxfordshire they're in Buckinghamshire organization called Everleaf um got an appointment with them took him to the appointment with a general psychiatrist who um assessed him and um came and told me that absolutely he had acute anxiety but gave me a bonus of OCD and a triple bonus of autistic traits so I left there with so many questions about what this is how can I help him you know you feel so Mm -hmm. powerless when you've got a kid who's who's struggling and really struggling with mental health like it wasn't something I was able to or qualified to deal with you know Mm -hmm. if someone comes to me with an HR query not a problem got that Mm -hmm. sussed but when it's your kid dealing with something that you can't really help them with it's it was really troubling um so the, the choice that I had then was to go back to CAMS to pursue uh, a diagnosis of uh, through or an assessment, sorry, of um, aut- autism mm-hmm. or to go privately. And just to give you some context, at the moment, the, the waiting time for diagnosis through, um, through CAMS, through the NHS, is around three years in the UK some areas it's five years and in Wales at the moment it's seven years wow With, yeah just nuts and you, and you think for that the, the implication of that for that duration with that young person yeah. who's living you know as a parent you can see that he's struggling but for him mm-hmm. he knows he's struggling and it's, things yeah. don't feel right and the world can feel quite really. scary it's a long time for it's people really floundering around yeah yeah it's too long Mm. and he was at that time 10 so he was just going into year six or he was just in year six and I for me it was so important that we had answers for him to be able to move into secondary school because you know it had already been missed through primary school Mm. and I do I I was just about to say I don't blame the teachers for that in some ways I wish that the teachers had had adequate training in order to be able to recognize that some of his behaviors and traits may be aligned to autistic spectrum disorder or autistic spectrum condition. Um, And they didn't, Mm. you know? So actually when I look back and go, what were the things about Toby's behavior at school that might have been a differentiator? So he Mm. didn't have friends necessarily at playtime. He played on his own. He played in his head. Mm. He, you know, and when I spoke to him about that playing in his head, he said that what happened in his head is that he builds these worlds and sometimes there'd be like big fight scenes or, you know, interactions and he'd be running around kind of recreating mm. these. And then when the bell went, he would literally pause them mm. and then go into class and come back out at lunchtime and restart them. And what I know now is that that's really common for those who have autistic traits to create those worlds you know the way they see the world and the world around us is is different for some Mm. so you know those kinds of indicators you'd think teaching staff would be more alert to they weren't so here we were going through the private um route to be diagnosed and at the same time by the way i i the ocd was evil you know, you've spoken to Colin about it. And mm. for me, that was the thing I would like to have, I, and still, because he still has um, some OCD, you know, sometimes I'm going to say flare ups, that's probably the, completely the wrong term. But, and and that's, the th- I would have loved to have taken that away from him. That was mm. very imposing. And mm. um, 
we went through CBT for months and I could see he was just well, not interested and this was not working. And in the end, he said, I don't I don't want to go anymore. So we we stopped the CBT. Um, but we did the um, the assessment for autism and it came back that he was confirmed as as having um, autistic spectrum disorder. Mm. or as he prefers Asperger's which Mm. is a which is a term that is slightly controversial with some because Asperger was related or you know associated with Nazi Germany etc I I get that but actually the the term describes a type of autistic spectrum disorder which he aligns to so and I respect his um, self-identification in that way you know I'm not here to say that he doesn't have that or you can't say it that way or you mustn't describe it as such if that's how he wants to describe himself then and that is so important isn't it just hearing the language that people use and when we whatever that is about like whether it's about their own needs or what's going on in the world or whatever when you can use their language you immediately build that rapport with them rather than you know I've been in so many situations where you hear someone's offer something and then someone else kind of reflects but using their own language because yeah. like that that's not what they said that's, yeah. that's not meaningful you're changing it to fit your narrative and your exactly. perspective your beliefs and actually at, when you when you can align with someone by using their language whatever they call it particularly yeah. about themselves we have mm-hmm. to respect that's so important absolutely and in exactly the same way that we see this playing out in lots of other areas you know Mm. around gender or race Mm. you know it's not for us to determine how somebody should be identified it's for for us to identify ourselves exactly so and and to respect that others identify in that way too Mm. so yeah that was um yes that was my journey so Mm. to answer your question about how do I come to be talking about it once Toby was diagnosed um Actually, the psychiatrist gave me this beautiful cartoon. I'll share it with you so you can share it with the listeners. But it's called Understanding the Spectrum. And it's got this little cartoon character who's describing autism and what it is. And the most impactful part of this cartoon was this this diagram of the autistic spectrum. And what they say in here is it's not linear. It doesn't go from not autistic to very autistic. And it's a line that you find yourself somewhere along the spectrum it's this beautiful rich kaleidoscope of colors and factors and divided into the five areas that we use to determine whether or not the criteria for diagnosis has been met Um, and therefore when we talk about we're all somewhere on the spectrum and we say it so flippantly I totally agree We are absolutely all somewhere on that beautiful spectrum because we all have a brain and our brains all have functions that are within those five areas. Now, we may may or may not, though, reach the criteria to be diagnosed with Mm. autistic spectrum disorder or condition or autism. Um, And that's the difference. All right. We all have a brain Mm. and it works differently to each other. So if we think about our fingerprint being unique, so is our brain unique and that for me as I learned was neurodiversity and the more I learned about it the the more I was struck by the fact that we're not talking about it in HR and in DNI in the same way that we're talking about other characteristics and certainly we know that in the wake of the George Floyd's um, murder the the number of people who work in DNI increased by 104% that year. Wow. And that was as a direct result of we need to do something mm. to really you know make a difference mm. um, particularly with a focus on race. And what I realized was that we need to be talking about neurodiversity mm. as well, you know, or as much as um other characteristics as well. Um and selfishly, so that when Toby enters the workforce in a couple of years, three years time, which is scaring me, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's hopefully a much more welcoming space because we have much better appreciation of the brilliance 
of our neurodiverse brains. And I love that the um, well, I love the fact you're trying to change the landscape for Toby. You know, so that his experience is really good in the future. So that is um, when you can do something that's so meaningful, isn't it? It doesn't get yeah. any more meaningful than that. <laughs> but in terms of, um, you know, I like the way you refer to neurodiversity as something which actually applies to all of us. You know, we are all neurodiverse. And I think um, because it's, it's, it's useful to unpick that term because a lot of people hear that yeah. term, they're not quite sure what it means. Yeah, um, yeah. And I wanted to ask you, you know, how do you define neurodiversity and, and actually how does that overlap with um, cognitive diversity that I know you sometimes talk about? Yeah, that's a great question. For me, they are one in the same. Mm. And you know, and and I'll use the Matthew Syed um, example here. Uh, Matthew, as we know, is a great writer. Talks about lots of brilliant kind of strategic thinking. Some great books. One of his, one of the books I read most recently is called Rebel Ideas, which is his book talking about cognitive diversity. For me, cognitive diversity is neurodiversity. It's the difference in the brains, the difference in thinking. And actually, if cognitive diversity is the phrase that is more accepted in a corporate sense, cool, you know, I'm all for it. But, you know, I'd love for him to acknowledge that, you know, these these are the, t- the same things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's just wishful thinking. I think the if you read if you get the chance to read the book or li- listen to the book, it's on um, Audible. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd highly recommend it. And I think you'll find they are the same thing. Um, what he does in the book though is he brings it to life with some really great examples of how cognitive diversity in teams makes such a positive difference and a positive impact so the fact that you can have you know 10 people in a team thinking in the same way won't allow for creativity or innovation but if you have you know, nine people in a team who think in one way and one person who thinks differently then you can start to really see the difference that that plays multiply that five people that think in the same way five people that think differently then you are really starting to get that difference of thought mm. and um different ways of working and that, that just reminds you saying that about um because you know, we know that groupthink is just not helpful if, you, if you're wanting to to innovate and um and just yeah. to get out of being stuck in a rut and it reminds me of de bono's thinking hats in terms of mm. encouraging people to put on a different hat and to think in a different way to how they would normally think yeah um, and it's really challenging for yeah. people to be able to do that because they naturally want to revert back to their normal patterns yeah and you know to try and be an optimist optimist if you're usually the person who just focuses on all the problems is really really hard it puts you way out of your comfort zone yeah so although we can try to do that and it's, and it's it can be useful to encourage people to step outside their comfort zone and look at the problem from a different perspective mm. actually if you've got people who who are in the team they naturally bring different ways of thinking mm. that just reduces all the effort for all of us because we can just stick with what we're really good at knowing that all the other bases are covered by our teammates and you get a really the power of that team then is, is immense isn't it it's it's really immense but what that needs is a culture that enables that and encourages it because what you've just said there is a really great example you know you have group think mm. I don't know if you're are you watching traitors at the moment on BBC it's no. a perfect example of group think and okay. it's a brilliant um series so um, they've put these, I think it's something like 22 people in a castle. They've Three of them, they've made traitors. The others are all called the faithful and they're trying to get the traitors out or trying to identify the traitors. And what happens is every night they come together and vote one person out. Mm. And you see this group think happen in the moment and go around the table and they... In, so far, they've only managed to find one traitor because they keep voting the the faithful because they're just influenced by each other. Yeah. Now, what you also see is that there's, you know, there's always one person that goes completely off on a curveball. And interestingly, what happens is a lot of the time they're ostracized for that or, you know, the rest of the group kind of mm. round on them. Mm. And this for me is 
what we see playing out in teams of people every day. Mm. So building a neurodiverse team is not like you know, unicorns and rainbows, right? What we're talking about is difficulty with um, understanding and appreciating different thinking styles, different communication styles, and coming to different conclusions mm. and all being okay with that. Mm like that doesn't happen naturally Mm. so what we what we have to do is to on our neuro-inclusive journey firstly understand what it what it means what is neurodiversity what are we talking about what are the differences in our in our brains why is that brilliant where can it be challenging but then building that culture of that's great and it's okay or let's do things differently or let's make allowances for the fact that this person wants to do that or mm. you know and so it takes some some thinking it takes some time but ultimately being neuroinclusive is just brilliant for all of us mm. because going back to the fact that we all have neurodiverse brains having the ability for everyone to shine is beneficial for all of us to to have our mm. time whatever that might look like and that really does then come to the understanding, doesn't it, of what yeah. um, what each of us is about. And it reminds me of the conversation yeah. we had, um, had with Colin about OCD, which is actually, yes, we were talking about OCD, but actually the messages were so relevant to to every every one of us in terms of mm-hmm. we are all unique. And if we watch, if we just understand each other okay. and what each other brings as part mm-hmm. of who they are and how they show up, then we can accommodate them and bring out the best in them. Yeah. And I think that that level of understanding just breaks down some of the fear and some of the, you know, people are so anxious about saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing or expecting the wrong thing. And actually what is OK and what isn't OK. And if we just have the courage to speak up and get to know each other, it increases yeah. that sense of connection, that sense of belonging, because I no longer feel fearful of this person. Um, and it reminds me of, you know, you're saying about uh, traitors yeah. Gosh, what was ringing my brain then was this the um Stanford prison experiment. I can't remember that I mean this is a long way, way, way back. So when I was right. training to do my all my psychology stuff, mm-hmm. um, this was, you know, this is one of the things we studied and right. it was stopped because it was so unethical because they ended up having people who were essentially prison guards and people who are the prisoners uh-huh. and we're just seeing what happened and actually it was that whole sense of pri- the prison guards came together and became a collective group where they all had that sense of belonging as a group and there's mm-hmm. their ability to dominate everything yeah. in quite unhealthy ways because mm-hmm. they had this sense of power mm-hmm. and that the poor prisoners were were um actually at the harsh end of um you know the treatment yeah and I think that's, that's played out day in, day out in workplaces Absolutely. where we Absolutely. end up aligning ourselves with people who are like us. Yeah. As long as there are more of those around and we become the dominant majority. Yeah. And actually these people over here are, the, you know, the out group, mm. there's always that void. And actually we need to work, like you said, very hard sometimes actually just getting to know people better so you're not afraid yeah. of them and we we feel comfortable with them and we know what we know they're we see their positive sides they're you know what they bring yeah. rather than yeah. the the diagnosis or whatever the traits are that exactly. we're fearful of yeah exactly and it it boils down to as you say about that individuality mm. you know one of the things I encourage people to do is to talk about what their particular strengths and challenges are and that's not just because not sorry not just related to those who are neurodivergent but it's related to everybody right so what are the things that you're brilliant at what are the things that are more of a challenge for you let's normalize that conversation so I'll give you an example when I joined London Business School my boss said to me what can I do to make this the best possible experience for you um, which you know is a question that I encourage everybody to ask. And I said to her, come to me last. When we have a round table, you know, that kind of creep of death of mm-hmm. what are your ideas, what are your thoughts, come to me last because I need time to process my thoughts, actually. I'm not generally <laughs> influenced by everyone else's thoughts. I won't kind of go, yeah, yeah, I agree. I'm one of those that will absolutely yeah. say 
what I'm thinking, um, but which can go well or not, actually, just to, you know, it's not always well received, but I'll always give it um, incoming. Uh, but it, but I want time to be able to process my thoughts. You know, mm. if you ask me for a, a, a an answer in the moment, I'll give you one. Give me five minutes, I'll give you something a bit different and a bit more measured. Mm. Um, and I love that you know she took the time to ask but equally what I'd love to do is that as a team you know who are you Mm. what's what are your strengths and challenges and then for us to collectively agree how we're going to work together and appreciate our differences and the fact that you know just because I do that in that way doesn't mean it's the right way to Mm. do it it's like you know classic leadership isn't it Mm. a leader says I want this as an outcome you know, the worst thing you can do is, and this is how you do it, Yeah. you know, because everyone needs to be able to apply themselves to the end, to come to the end yes. outcome rather than be told, and this is, unless you're working on a kind of construction yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. line or whatever. So it's, it's really applying the principles of, um, I guess, what HR and some managers might do in terms of if they have someone coming to them who's got a specific need whatever that might be and they have that yeah. conversation about okay what how can we support you mm-hmm. um what do you need in order to to, to be in your best place to yeah. feel good and perform well actually just have that conversation okay. with everybody yeah yeah so what what are some of the um sort of most common neurodiverse conditions or um yeah. some of the traits that people might experience in the workplace that maybe people don't know how to uh interpret or they just see them and they think oh, is this just people being difficult or like yeah. what should I do there's a whole kind of like we see the stuff you know amongst our colleagues but actually what what are those things about yeah so let me let me start by talking about what are the neurodiverse conditions so mm. actually let me take a step back even further so neurodiversity is a is a phrase that was created by um an Australian sociologist called Judy Singer. She's still very much at the forefront of the movement. So neurodiversity as a phrase has only been around since the late 90s. Mm. Um, And she created this umbrella term to capture, if you like, all of the neurodiverse conditions and the fact that the world needs neurodiversity. So literal translation, our neuros are different. Um, So our difference in our brains the world needs difference in our brains as much as it needs biodiversity. And we all know the benefits of biodiversity. Mm. So, but under this umbrella sits a number of conditions. I'll just talk you through them. So firstly, dyslexia, which is a condition that can cause problems with reading, writing, and spelling. Uh, Dysgraphia, which is a condition that can cause challenges with a set of skills known as transcription so taking what's in your brain and transcribing it whether that's typing or writing um, and spelling so the things that allow us to actually produce writing or outcome dyscalculia is a condition that can affect our ability to acquire math skills um, and might somebody with dyscalculia might have some challenges with understanding number concepts or learning number facts and procedures Um, Developmental coordination disorder or dyspraxia is a condition that can affect our fine and or gross motor coordination and can also affect speech. Developmental language disorder is a type of speech, language and communication need where some might have difficulty talking and or understanding language. Um, Autistic spectrum disorder, as we've spoken about, is a condition that can impact the way in which we think about and experience the world around us, and that could be different to others. Uh, Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, is an impairment of our brain self-management system, which can also affect our executive functioning. So our ability to plan, manage, organize, etc. And then finally, Tourette's syndrome is a condition that can cause a person to make involuntary sounds and movements called tics. Now, what's really important to understand here is that each of the neurodiverse conditions is a spectrum condition. Mm. Um, So, you know, the way it can impact an individual is absolutely individual. What we also know is that 
the rule rather than the exception is that these conditions are interconnected and interrelated and they are playing out together. Mm. So what we know, as we said, you know, some of the traits, say, for example, somebody with dyslexia might have strengths and challenges around reading, writing and spelling, but then they may also have traits of um, other conditions such as, you know, uh, the sensory differences or social imagination that are typically associated with autism or impulsivity that's typically related to ADHD. Mm. And, and that is normal. Mm. And the difficulty with this is that it means that sometimes we may reach the criteria through the traits that we're displaying in order to be diagnosed with a condition. Mm. The problem with the diagnosis is that it's looking specifically at or for that condition. So if I take Toby's diagnosis, for example, absolutely confirmed diagnosis of autistic spectrum disorder. More recently, as he lost his keys for the third time in a week and I'm losing my shit for the third time mm-hmm. in a week, <laughs> I started to kind of go, hold on a minute, that, you know, that coupled with his, you know, sometimes inability just to get started to actually organize himself you know there's no lack of motivation started to make me think about there are some traits related to ADHD that are playing out here and so we completed uh, a screening tool and it confirmed that he also has ADHD traits now do I want to pay another x thousand pounds in order to go through to get diagnosed with ADHD absolutely not is it great that we now are aware that we have those traits and that we have challenges in that particular area. Yeah, brilliant. Mm. And in fact, the screening tool, um, again, I'll share this with you so you can pass this on. The screening tool has been developed by Professor Amanda Kirby, who is like my absolute guru in the world of neurodiversity. Um, And she has a screening tool called Workplace Plus, which is for in the workplace, which is 60 pounds. She also has these ones for children, which has just been redeveloped and relaunched, which is £25. And this is for key stages one, two and three. So it's not a diagnosis, but honestly, the report is so helpful, gives you your spiky profile. I sent it into school. They were, you know, very receptive of the report and are taking into account those traits. So this is going back to that point of having a real understanding and appreciation of our individual strengths and challenges in order to enable everybody to thrive in a workplace and in a team and that's you know in terms of our employee engagement that is everything and that culture yeah and I guess actually listening to you it's the you know it's one thing that the person understanding their own experience a little bit more so they can identify strategies and and so on so for example going through that screening process and getting a report that outlines ideas about how to to support this person um you know whether in the workplace or in school or whatever is is great Mm -hmm. but it really does also require then the people around in the wider team um Mm -hmm. in the classroom if you're at school to also to have some understanding And and I guess you know, I'm curious to know whether there's whether organisations are doing enough in terms of giving people that that information about what these what different traits, you know, what different conditions might look and feel like, and actually what we might experience in terms of what those traits are that are showing up, and yeah. how we can make sense of them, and how we can avoid the kind of blanket approach of well, so and so and someone else I worked with experienced ADHD, and this is what worked for him or her, so this is there what we do for you, so. I guess there's that whole bigger picture, isn't there, about making sure everyone knows Mm. about, it's a bit like your comment earlier about you wish the teachers had known a bit more. Maybe there's a sense of, I don't know, is should workplaces be doing more in this area in terms of just upskilling or giving people more knowledge around Mm. what to look for and how to make sense of it? Yeah, I I think the answer is yes. You know, it's it's a great starting point, I think, Mm more I'm doing lots more um, webinars for organizations to raise awareness of neurodiversity I talk to them about what is it 
what are the traits etc you know mm. a bit more than we've just talked about today but but then I you know there's a big call to action there so it's then it's so what what are you going to do with this information and we have to be really careful that we're not just kind of going around scattering you know neurodiversity glitter over organizations and then skipping off into the sunset you know there's a real point of okay now you've got that information what are we going to do differently and you know I do ask organizations to apply a neuroinclusive lens on every element of their employee life cycle know that they've got a bit more information about what is neurodiversity and in context one in five of us we think have a neurodiverse brain or neurodivergent brain to the extent where we would reach the criteria for diagnosis of a neurodiverse condition you know back to what we said earlier about all of us have a neurodiverse brain but that one in five uh, reach the criteria that means that neurodiverse talent is already in your organization it's already in your team and what we also know is that this is genetic so it's already in your family you will have somebody you will know of somebody who has a neurodiverse condition or have neurodiverse traits so what this means is in our organizations is that this already exists and what we can do now is use this knowledge and information to start to to make our organizations truly neuroinclusive. And that means, you know, thinking about the way we recruit or even thinking about what do our website say about our organization, you know, that right before at the point of attraction, what are we, what are we doing? What are we saying? And it's not just enough to type a few keywords so that your search engine optimization is really great. <laughs> you know, I'd really love you to actually be doing something about it. Um, but then, through your recruitment processes, through writing your job descriptions. You know, if you're looking to recruit a driver, write that you need a driver. Don't write that you need somebody who can procure a vehicle and insert a implement. <laughs> a, you know, don't yeah. flower it Play up. It how it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And don't over say it. Yeah. Because what that means is that sometimes we can take ourselves out of the process if it's too much if you know in the same way that we've got research over women taking themselves out of a process if they don't meet 100% of the criteria so can those who are some who are neurodiverse decide well that's not me because I haven't got all of that really complicated stuff that they say I need to have it can be can take it very literally Mm. similarly if you don't have a closing date on your job ad that can be really troublesome for some who are neurodivergent because they need a deadline what am I working to Mm. Well, there is no deadline. It says that we're just going to, you know, go with the flow. That's, you Mm. know, going to really be troublesome for some. And then when you go through your actual recruitment process, you're asking people, again, that question, rather than saying, what adjustments do you need? Which just sounds like how much of a pain in the ass do you want to be through this process? Say that question of what can I do to make this the best possible experience for you? And that might encourage people to share you know, it would be great if you give me the questions in advance, which seems to be the one question that makes recruitment experts kind of do a deep breath and, you know, audibly inhale. And my challenge back is, what are you, why is that so troublesome? Mm. Like giving somebody the opportunity to prepare themselves adequately to be their best should not be troublesome for you and if it is troublesome for you give everyone the questions Mm. you know just blanket everybody the questions give everybody the opportunity to come as their best selves and then you know that you're covering it off so there are really small things we can do and again I'll share some resource with you because I've um, written some up on each of the areas of the employee life cycle that really enables people to thrive and what it's majored on is creating neurodiverse teams you know really actively enabling people who have brains that think differently Mm. to come together in a team and to really thrive your I have to say the the resources that you're going to share the links to we can put in the the show notes are going to be really helpful I think for helping people as they turn this turn what they're hearing now and the conversations they might be having into action and I think that's A really key step and I'm curious actually to pick up on a point you were making before about um 
assessment and mm-hmm. screening mm-hmm. and to know whether so if 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 you've got workplaces who are feeling a bit more familiar with um some of the traits and understanding a little bit more about um you know the differences that we are all bringing mm. do you think it's because some people will turn up with a an assessment with a label and say yeah. I am someone who is diagnosed with whatever mm-hmm. or I experience traits of whatever yeah um and there'll be some of the people who I guess haven't actually twigged yet that they are in that space no. but someone who might be in HR or might who just might be another colleague a manager mm-hmm. whoever has questions and is beginning to think oh maybe you know, I'm spotting some of these traits that Mel's been talking to us about yeah is it appropriate for, in your opinion, for um, people in the workplace to have conversations and say, have you thought about or to, um, you know, go down the, that route of bringing such a sense of conversation up? Mm-hmm. Because I know that's something that people tend to worry about. Like, yeah. I think they are, but should I say it? Should I not yeah, say yeah. it? Yeah. Um, it's So my blank answer is no. <laughs> And, but I'm just going to qualify that mm. to say you are not leaving this call as a qualified psychologist it's not up to you to be able to say have you ever thought that you might be autistic I, I'm seeing that you've got a few traits here <laughs> plus you know, the and re- um, sadly the reason why that's not going to land well is because we're just not there yet mm. and some organizations are so there are some organizations who um they do this the workplace plus screener for everyone so you know it's very culturally accepted and normal that everyone has conversations about neurodiversity they understand what their particular strengths and challenges are and whether or not they align to a neurodiverse condition and that's great and I really really pray that we that we get there Mm. but in the majority of organizations at the moment we're not there so if you're an HR professional who leaves this call recognizing you know that there's somebody in your team or in your family or whatever that may be displaying these traits. What I'm saying is talk to them about the traits. Don't talk to them about, therefore this might be X. Mm. Uh, And that's particularly important for HR professionals, I would say, where, for example, somebody comes to you, I don't know, uh, let's talk about lateness, which, you know, is one of those conduct things that we see quite a bit. Now, you might go, oh, they might be ADHD or they might have ADHD. That's why they're late. Well, that may be so. But actually, what you're dealing with is the fact that they are persistently late. And so what you can do is have a conversation about their persistent lateness and you're following your kind of conduct process. And what you can also do is give them tips and techniques to help them to think about how they might get themselves in on time. Mm. And really, there's the line, right? What we can't do is go, and here's some material about ADHD that you might want to look into, right? It has to be for people to discover this for themselves and discover that this aligns to, mm. you know, it's a potential trait of ADHD and and yeah. go through that. But what we can do in our organization is to have the conversations about neurodiversity, raise awareness, signpost to resources that enable people to make that exploratory journey now if people are coming to you proactively and saying I think I might have ADHD can I can you help then that's a different story you know we can be much more responsive to that Mm -hmm. and signpost people to resources lots of organizations um it support people with diagnosis even mm. um, and take them down that right route which is which is great and really helpful um, but lots of us aren't there yet. I think it's such a good point and such an important point you make because some people will never want uh, any type of diagnosis um, and the whole idea of being labelled terrifies them. I remember having a conversation mm. with someone a couple of years ago who as an adult went to see someone about um, just some challenges she was experiencing and and the person she was speaking to said you know what I think you have uh, and gave her a diagnosis okay. and she almost felt traumatized by it she's like I don't yeah. know who I am anymore and you're now saying that I am this and she she just couldn't get her head around and didn't feel comfortable with having this diagnosis as part of her 
identity mm-hmm. whereas actually if they hadn't mentioned I think you've got mm-hmm. uh whatever the her particular condition was and just said I can see that you're struggling with x y and z mm-hmm. let's look at how we can support you with that or what you can do to think about that differently or you just have the conversation around what you're what, what you're seeing and what this person's clearly experiencing so there's no dispute around that it's mm-hmm. actually how, how we can think about it differently that's non-threatening yeah so, so it just takes all and and actually it takes the um like when we look at it that way mm-hmm. it takes the fear out for hr or managers or anyone else in yeah. terms of i don't really know how to go and have a conversation about neurodiversity stuff because i might say the wrong thing or i might have said yeah. actually if you just talk about what you're seeing or experiencing and you're having the conversation in the right with the right intention which is to be supportive and to be helpful and i can see this is a problem for you challenge for you you're struggling with such and such how yeah. can we together work out how to make that better you can't yeah. go wrong <laughs> no exactly exactly and it was interesting you said about you know a, a female who mm. was given that so w- what we're finding um is that more and more women are being diagnosed with neurodiverse conditions later in life mm. um particularly autism and adhd and when I've looked into this, what I've discovered is that the the diagnoses for both of those conditions were developed back in the 80s, I think, um, predominantly by observing boys. So, you know, we, I think there are lots of, sadly, lots of stereotypes that are attached to the different conditions. And when you think about ADHD, a lot of people think about you know, the naughty boy in the classroom but what we're missing is the dreamy girl in the classroom because we weren't looking at the dreamy girl we were looking at the naughty boy Mm. and that's what the diagnosis or the diagnostics were developed Mm. to do what we know now is that the traits play out differently across genders in particular Mm. with um with adhd and autism and so what we're finding is more and more women are being diagnosed with adhd and autism later in life and it's really interesting because it's not like everyone goes yay brilliant thank you so much for my badge which is you know accepted by some and not by others a lot of people find it really difficult to accept that diagnosis to to understand it to realize that actually you know life would have been different and Mm. this is the same for all of the neurodiverse conditions actually dyslexia is another one that people are not diagnosed with a lot of the time Mm. Um, and people cope you know they they just work in the way that they do Um, and what we know with girls is that they mask and they camouflage and so it can be difficult to spot and that's also really exhausting mm. for um, for girls in particular who just want to fit in with their peers. Mm. So in the school space, they might just be, you know, masking so heavily that you you don't recognize any of those traits. And yet when they come home, you get the benefit of a full meltdown because yeah, you know, they can let the mask totally. drop when they come home. And then we go, oh, they're a hormonal girl. Yeah, they just must be really badly impacted by hormones. Blah 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 whatever they're a nightmare so it's just really looking at things so differently and through those different angles but you know until we remove that stigma and keep talking about it and keep talking about the strengths and challenges Mm. you know the language around neurodiversity is so negatively weighted you know you look at um autistic spectrum disorder or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder you know it's all really negative there's no sort of positive connotations and sadly the stereotypes are weighed so far in the past you know people talk to me still about Rain Man when I looked up Rain Man that film was made in something like 1986 right it's 2022 we we know so much more about it you know if I threw I was thinking about this the other day if I threw a box of matches up in the air and on the floor Toby would look at me like I'm absolutely mad be like what and yet that's what people assume is is autism and it's not and I think it's really important actually because your point about um girls will often mask it um and 
boys can be seen as the kind of the naughty boys and it's very yeah. easy um to just jump to conclusions we we make assumptions assumptions all the time in terms of forming our judgments yeah. and I think a really good question to ask ourselves is you know what's driving that behavior so if you think about in your workplace you know there'll always be some people who just seem maybe a, a bit aloof or maybe a bit just they they're always the argumentative ones always the negative ones or there's always and there are people who you know we could all think of right now are the people who just make our lives on the surface just feel a bit tricky or they're the, they're the people who are like gosh if we if they just weren't around my life would be so much easier they just wouldn't resist yeah. change and all that sort of stuff and actually if you just understand a bit more about what they're what's behind the behavior which might be to do with neurodiversity or not it can be anything um we again we can just take away that sense of it's awkward it's different yeah actually oh I get why this person is late to work or I get why this person doesn't like being in a room full of people or I get why this person doesn't like change and they appear to just be being awkward um you know they're the ones who were might be naughty at school or the quiet ones at school and now we're seeing in the workplace yeah but actually we need to understand rather than labeling them assuming that they're the you know the quiet ones or the difficult ones actually there might be a whole lot more going on for them yeah and actually isn't that just really rich you know they're the quiet ones or the different ones because we're not all the same you know it goes full circle background to that point you know just because 80 percent of us have brains that work in pretty much the same way Mm. then so that norming Mm. starts there and and we recruit people that look like us and talk like us and think like us, which is all really comfortable. Mm. But actually, it should feel a bit uncomfortable because you should have people challenging you all the yeah. time. And that is a really great sign of a truly neurodiverse team is that, you know, you, you have people bumping up against each other because of that discomfort. I was watching... Um, probably one of the most famous neurodiverse individuals at the moment, which is Elon Musk, who is, you know, openly um, talks about his autism or his Asperger's as he prefers. There's a great um, documentary on, again, iPlayer at the moment, which is, I think it's called the Elon Musk show. And there's three episodes. They're about an hour long, but it's interviews with him, but interviews with his family and those that he works with what's fascinating about watching him at play is he's really uncomfortable and like to watch and to interact with and he's awkward and he's blunt and he says it as it is but he's also the boss so then you look at the people around him who you can see are just exhausted by his constant unreasonable demands and you know he's he's brilliantly creative brain that takes them off in loads of different directions and the reaction of them is is fascinating now I think if you were to flip that round and put him in the team and have you know a neurotypical boss and team around him it would be really different um and yet we wouldn't have Tesla we wouldn't have SpaceX Mm. god no yeah I was absolutely glued with what's going on at Twitter when he shut the offices for the weekend. Oh, I was like, yeah. what the hell is he going to do? Mm. This is so fascinating. But, you know, that is, mm. you know, a neurodiverse leader absolutely mm. demonstrating, you know, how this can work in teams. It's really so, interesting. So what do organisations need to do then? I mean, you've, you've covered so much already, but is there more that you want to mention that, organizations can be doing at either an organizational level mm-hmm. um to be more neuro inclusive or to support individuals uh with neurodiverse conditions is there is there, is there other other ideas of things that actually could make a people could walk away from this conversation say when and go and put into practice yeah i think you, firstly that point of awareness you know mm-hmm. let's let's normalize this conversation let's understand the language and what we're talking about I think sometimes when we don't understand the language we just back off of that conversation you know so and it's okay if you don't know if you're using the right phrase like neurodiverse neurodivergent neurotypical blah, blah, blah. I did a talk and I was talking for an hour and then when I came out someone went 
should I be saying neurodiverse or neurodivergent? I was like, it doesn't, just the fact that you're talking about it is perfect. Like, don't, please don't get hung up on the language. But having an awareness raising session, I think is your, you know, your starting point, but then deciding where you're going next. Mm. And I think if that means creating uh, a networking or a network group within your organization, signpost to resources, having somebody in the DNI team or the HR team, if you've got those people in your organization who knows about this stuff is great. Mm -hmm. Letting people know that's the person you can go and speak to is perfect. But then having those um, different mechanisms or you know initiatives at each stage of the process to make sure you're being truly neuro-inclusive is really really helpful mm. and then realizing you know one in five of us is neurodivergent having that support for your staff and their families and their kids right so we've just spoken about or we spoke earlier about the amount of time that it takes to go through the process to be diagnosed we haven't even spoken about the EHCP the education healthcare plan which is in the news this week which is the thing that you need in order to get your kids support within the school now Toby doesn't qualify for one of those because his needs are not of such a level that mm. they deem that you would need one now you know I still want them to know that he needs extra time that transitions are really difficult etc cetera, etc cetera. so that's on me mm. but as a parent and a working parent I want my work to know that I've got that stuff going on so that they can support me or know if I say look I need to make a call to the school that I've got that going on as well so it all goes back to that truly inclusive and appreciative culture and encouraging that and enabling that as well and I love the fact you pulled that all the way back around to culture because you know when you were mentioning just now about um you know recruiting people who are different to us and embracing the kind of you didn't use the word clashes but it's that sense of actually difference of opinion and being challenged actually you've got to have the right culture for that to feel okay and yeah. so you know all this is, is goes back to that whole sense of drawing the dots between you know this uh neurodiversity mental health um you know you know the huge correlation uh you know you've talked yeah, about toby and anxiety yeah. um and just that whole sense of leadership and around culture and psychological safety and actually how yeah. we have good conversations and how it's okay to speak up yeah you know and share it be a bit provocative in terms of a difference of opinion and mm. that all ideas and uh all opinions are valid and actually we're okay to hear them all and there's no shutting anyone down it's like actually let's hear and then let's move forward with it and okay. that comes back to that whole piece around actually how we communicate with each other regardless yeah. of any other agenda going on just how do we have how do we feel safe in terms mm -hmm. of saying what needs to be said in a respectful way but you know being open about these are my ideas this is what I think this is what I can see you doing wrong this isn't very helpful this is mm -hmm. this could be more helpful and regardless of who you are um you know neurodiverse like sort of labels or not or managers or newbie whatever just having a culture where actually everyone feels safe to to be themselves and to speak up so that culture piece is so so important isn't it yeah it's it's absolutely critical because you know you can't you can't thrive unless you're in an environment that enables you to do that mm. and if you're constantly whacked down or told you're wrong or questioned you know that's just exhausting mm. and also what it does is it just completely dumbs down that real talent mm. and ultimately you, you haven't spent all of your efforts attracting recruiting talent to just tell them they're not good enough yeah but and I think also, fit with yes, you. yeah and it's that also as soon as someone because even if you if someone hasn't got a label mm. if if awareness is increasing so people might start to look at each other in a slightly different way in terms of they seem to have the traits of I know ADHD or ASD yeah, or whatever yeah. it might be but then it's very easy to say, oh, that's the person. That's the ADHD yeah. ADHD person. Yeah, and actually, exactly. Firstly, I mean, it was a point we covered when I was talking with Colin that we mustn't label people by their uh, their particular traits or their diagnosis. It's, they are a person, first and foremost, who might have uh, OCD or whatever it might be. Yeah, exactly. Um, but also we need to make sure we are getting beyond 
people being defined just how we think about them by their particular diagnosis or traits so actually what are the positives and I think if you know I love your idea about networks Mm -hmm. as a way of bringing together people who are interested Mm -hmm. wherever they sit on that neurodivergent continuum if we're interested in developing this and you know exploring this a little bit more yeah making us more inclusive getting a network of people together and actually identifying you know a way what a wonderful way to start would be just identifying all the positives that we have from people who are neurodiverse because if we can highlight the positives highlight actually why we want these people in the organization and what how we benefit from having these people as part of our organization mm-hmm. it suddenly raises these people up onto a pedestal rather than or we've got these people who we now need to identify who they are and put yeah. the labels on them and so on. Yeah. So it's really yeah. being very con- considerate and very intentional about how we're shaping that whole agenda from the outset. Yeah, absolutely. And it's being truly inclusive mm. and positive on this journey. You know, mm. it's, um, you know, when we start to think about things like um, employment law, right? So I'll just pull up on that because employment law there are some really interesting case law there's a case which is Sherborne versus Power, which the employment law geeks on the call will want to go and have a look at because Sherborne successfully won a claim of disability discrimination against Power, and this was only 2019 so relatively recently I mean we know as well that the number of tribunal claims related to neurodiversity last year increased by a third so for us employment law people and HR, this is really relevant. In the Sherborne case, Sherborne didn't have a diagnosis. Mm. So the law is saying you don't need to have a diagnosis. What they did know is that he had said, I think I might be autistic. And they chose to ignore that. There's a long kind of case summary. I'm really summarizing it um, probably unfairly on their part, but they chose to ignore the fact that he might have autism they plowed ahead with a performance management case they dismissed him he claimed unfair dismissal with disability discrimination the tribunal found in his favor now that's not to scaremonger all of the hr people and go you know but what it does do is brings it to the fore of you know not only should we be doing this for the benefit of our organization because we're nice people and we want great organizations there's a big legal risk here if you don't Mm. in the same way that if you're not making accommodations for disabled people or you're discriminating against people on any other protected characteristic characteristic Mm. the risk is there and the risk is there for Mm. um for neurodiversity Mm. as well so you know there's there's two streams to this is doing the right thing there's also ensuring that you're doing the right things in line with the law as well so it, it kind of focuses the mind for, for yeah, it does, the it? world a bit well, depending Sorry, on how you think, well, that. yeah are you are you the word are you the person who's worried about the lawyers or, or you're an ethical person you're going to fit in one <laughs> yeah, of the camps exactly. um so so as we kind of wrap up are there any other pieces of advice um that you would want people to be mindful of you know to take away from this conversation um to to make a difference I think my advice would be just please just get started. Mm. You know, if you if you still feel like there are gaps in your knowledge, um, take a look at my LinkedIn page. I have posted loads of videos of different um, podcasts and resources on there that you can have a look at. I'll share uh, some links to some resources with you through Lisa as well. But my advice is just get started. Don't mm. wait for somebody else to do it. You know, take the take the initiative be the one that starts the conversation in your organization and get it going have a look on the networks the community if you google it or look on linkedin for neurodiversity there are loads of people who are talking about it um and it really will help to to fill any gaps that you have get in touch with me really happy to to take any questions as well but just get started Mm. and make be that be that positive difference for your organization yeah the ripple effect one person starting the conversation yeah thank you now so um one of my recent guests nicola from Mm -hmm. nicola Weir from deloitte um who joined me actually to discuss uh esg which is a great conversation um has provided me the blind question for you 
Okay. Um, and actually, I think this is, this is a really good one in terms of your interest in neurodiversity as well. So what change will you make today that your children will be proud of tomorrow? Ah, uh, my, my real pride comes from not only talking about neurodiversity, but the difference that it's making for Toby in the future. And the pride that I get from him telling me he's proud of me is mm. really, is really lovely. You know, the fact that he can see what I'm doing and, and the difference that that's making for him and for others is probably the thing that, you know, fills me with the most um, pride for, not just for him, but for, well, for my child tomorrow, but for lots of children tomorrow, I hope. That's awesome. It fits. That's such a good question to ask you. It's perfect. <laughs> um, and, and it's lovely, isn't it? But that, so it's closing that kind of feedback loop in terms of yeah. you are working your socks off to make a really positive change for yeah. Toby and it will impact on so many other people. But to have that feedback about the the, the impact it is having, I don't think we yeah. often close the loop enough. Um, so that's that's a brilliant example. Mel, thank you so much for your time today. I My honestly, pleasure. so easy to talk to you about this. That's I knew you would be from the conversation we'd had before today. You want someone just who's smiling, practical, and down to earth, and and just engages in the conversation to kind of break down the the stigma and the concern, and and just make it feel like something that's something we can all engage with, and that actually is something we do need to engage with. We can't just say it's it's not our problem. So I think you've done that brilliantly. Thank you so very much. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to join you. It's been really lovely talking to you too. Thanks, Lisa. Pleasure. Thank you for joining me on the Beyond the Water Cooler podcast. I hope it's got you thinking about how you can make a real difference to company culture that enables people to really engage and thrive. And now it's your turn to help me, please. Rating my podcast and leaving a review means that my guests' messages spread further. And when I know what you've enjoyed, found helpful, what you'd like to hear discussed more of in the future, and ideas for great guests, I can make sure I deliver. Let's continue the conversation about the points raised in this podcast. Or perhaps you have other questions about employee experience and performance. You can email me at It's Time for Change connect with me on LinkedIn, or why not pick up the phone? I love to walk and talk. My details are all in the show notes. So until next time, bye for now.